The following message by Pastor Tim is brought to you by Together in Christ. Good morning. It's good to see all of you here this morning. The final hurrah of summer. We've reached it. All right, well, we finished Jonah last week, and so we're going to get back into Ephesians because we hadn't finished Ephesians. And so our, our focus today is going to be in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 and 21, which is the end of chapter 3. Uh, if you have your Bible, <clears throat> if you want to turn there, uh, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in front of you, in the pew rack in front of you. You can take that one and use that one this morning. But Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20 through 21 will be our focal point. But really, we're going to use today as a review to remember where we have been in Ephesians to get us all caught back up. If you remember, Ephesians really is broken up into two major sections. There's six chapters in Ephesians. And so chapters one through three is a section, really, and then chapters four, five, and six are a different section. In chapters one through three, what we, what we see, what Paul shares for us, is he, he kind of is getting across to us what it means to be in Christ, so what it means for us to actually be in Christ or, or who you are in Christ and the importance of that, of being in, in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And then as we get to chapters four to six, where we'll, we'll start next week, is then how to work this new life in Christ out while we are still here on earth. How do we do this as individuals? And how do we do this then as a church family? which there is a, a difference there. And we'll see that as we go through Ephesians uh, chapter four through six. Like I said, today our, our verses are uh, verse 20 and 21 of chapter three. But this being the end of one of these major sections that I was telling you about, I do think it would be good for us to cover what we had been going through. And so for us this morning, it'll be a little different than what we normally do because what I wanna do is I actually want to read Ephesians 1 through 3 and stop at certain points just to remind us of what we've read and what God is saying there and then spend a little bit of time at the end of the message to cover the verses that I, that I talked about. I know this is unusual to maybe read this much scripture, but I, I hope that God will use it in our lives and to help us to be refreshed and to remember what is being done in Ephesians because in Ephesians chapters 1 through 3, we have really a treasure trove of, of information there that God has given us through Paul. It really is exciting to see all that God has done for us despite ourselves and what it means for us to be in Christ. And so I hope that you'll bear with me as we read through this uh, together. I did this this week just to, just to try it. And it really only takes five minutes to read these three chapters. Now it'll take longer this morning with stopping and stuff, but I don't want it to seem daunting as we, as we approach it. So uh, join with me there in chapter one. Follow along if you would, please. It won't be on the screen. You can follow along in your Bible. And like I said, we'll break this up into some sections and try to, try to talk about it together. So it says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. 
In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who are the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. Now, I think we need to stop there for a second because this really is a interesting section. I told you this when we did it. Verse three, all the way to verse 14, is one sentence in the Greek. That's a lot of words in a sentence. It needs to be a lot of commas so you can breathe as you're going through it. But what Paul has done is he has packed so much in this one sentence. And it's as if he was getting excited as he was talking about it. And it just kept being a running sentence, a run on, as he wanted to share more and more and more of the glorious truths that he had, had for us to see that has been done for us in Christ. And so he says there in that section, he talks about how all blessings from God flowing to us because of the love that God has for us, really despite us. And we see that there. It says every spiritual blessing. Again, I don't need to preach this sermon again, but it's every single one. As a Christian, you have every single spiritual blessing. There's no special blessing that you need to try to obtain. There's no special blessing that you get when you get to the certain level of Christianhood that doesn't exist. That's not real. You, in salvation, have been given every spiritual blessing. And again, not because of you, but because of Christ through him. Right? And so that's what it goes on to say. It continues to say this. It says, God the Father has chosen us in him, in Christ, when? Before the foundation of the world. Before you were ever born. Before your parents ever thought of you. Before they were ever shocked that you were coming, maybe. That was your situation in your family. Before ever it was, we are told in Scripture that God has chosen us in him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Now, if you came in here today feeling bad about yourself as a Christian, I hope that that makes you feel good. I hope that that makes you feel special because God has chosen you, despite you. God's love for you has saved you in Christ. And he said he's done this, why? So that you can be blameless in Christ. We have this special gift that God has given us in grace that it's not just heaven, but we've been given righteousness, the righteousness of Christ, so that when God sees us, when God the Father sees us as his chosen, as his love, as those he has saved by his grace, when he sees you, he doesn't see your mess-ups that you did this week. We just had a time of confession that Pastor Spencer led us through, and we are called to do that as Christians. But we, are also, we also know that when God sees us, he sees us blameless in Christ because he sees his son, he sees the blood of his son, which was perfect. And so not just that, not only are we chosen by him to be saved by his grace and to be seen blameless, but then we have this good news that we have been predestined in this verse. We have been predestined, what? For adoption to himself. So it's not just a situation where God says, you know, 
I'm going to show some grace to you. You're saved. Congrats. It's you are saved, but you are also, you are mine. You are my child. I adopt you into my family. I haven't just chosen you to bear my name or whatever and go out. No, you are, you are mine. You are part of my family. And I've chosen this to happen according to his will, it says. But then it also talks about redemption, how we have redemption through the blood of Jesus and not just in some small amount. And so when we, when we look at the story of the cross and we, you know, we'll be entering that at, at some point, whenever we get to Easter, we think about that, I guess, more. But we look at the story of the cross and we th- look at all that Jesus went through and we've heard the stories of him being flogged and of, of, of being punched and his beard being plucked out and then putting a robe on his back after being flogged, you know, and it kind of dries and they rip that robe off. We, we think of all that pain and anguish and if that wasn't enough, he then gets nailed to a cross and he hangs on that cross until he dies. And, and we see that and maybe we don't understand that, but every single second of that was for you was for you. Not one of the whips, not one of the nails, not one of the drops of blood. No, you needed all of it, all of the blood. And Jesus and his great love for you obeyed the father to do that because he loves you because of the love that the father has for you. And so Paul talks about how this blood of Christ is, is lavished on us, not in a small amount, full amount, 100%. There's no 50% Christians. There's no, I'm part of God's family sometimes and sometimes not. No, 100%. Because the blood of Christ has been lavished on you. And Paul keeps reiterating this through this sentence, that this has been the plan for all time. This has been God's plan for all time. And you, as a believer, are part of that plan And Paul goes on because he's talking to a church full of Gentiles, which we are also. And he's saying, yes, the Jews received this first. We were told this first. But now you, when you heard this and you believed, you have received. And what does he say? He says, and there is something, someone that guarantees this for you. And it's not somebody small and insignificant. Paul says, and the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of your salvation. Nothing can rip this from you. Nothing can take this away from you. You cannot take this away from you because it's not a gift that you gave yourself. It is a gift that God has given you and he has sealed it and guaranteed it forever. And why does he do this? Well, Paul says at the end there of 14, to the praise of his glory. Not to the praise of your glory, not to the praise of my glory, not so that I look good, not so that Monroe Missionary Baptist Church can look good. God did all of this for the praise of his glory. Something it would do well for us as a church to remember, as for all churches to remember. The church exists simply for the praise of his glory. For his glory. And the best thing for all humanity, really for all mankind, would be if everybody would give him the praise that he is due. Now, sadly, most of the world's not going to do that. They're not his. They don't believe in him. They've never trusted in Christ. They will not give him the praise that he is due. But let it never be said that the church doesn't give him the praise that he is due. Because that's what God has done for us here. That is what Paul is saying. Well, let's continue on, if you would. Paul says, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you 
remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him. Having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. And I want to stop there just real quick because it's relevant to what we're going to look at this morning in 20 through 21. What Paul is saying here is we need to remember that the same power that God worked in the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the exact same power that saves you and that is working to mold and make you into the image of his son, Jesus. It's the same power. And so when we stand awed in the Easter story, when we stand awed in that, that Jesus would die, would be buried, but we'd raise again, be in awe then every day when you wake up and understand God still loves you because it's that same exact power that works in you. Jesus is on the throne, it says here, that, God, that the Father has put all things under his feet. And that wasn't just back then. That's still right now, currently. We have that promise and we have that hope. Well, Paul goes on, chapter two. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Now you have to stop there because this is pretty gloomy. This isn't the most exciting thing that Paul has said. He just told us all these great things in Christ. And now he's like throwing this darkness on us because we're all part of it. All of us. It says all of us are children of wrath. All of us live in this nature. All of us are sinners. All of us are separated from God. We're dead in these trespasses. And it needs to be remembered. What does a dead man do? Nothing. A dead man does nothing. A dead man is dead. You can't expect a dead man to get up and cook you dinner. You can't expect a dead man to say, hey, how are you doing? You can't expect a dead man to agree with you. You can't expect a dead man to do anything because why? He's dead. And this is what Paul says of everybody. Apart from Christ, we are dead. We are dead in our trespasses. We are dead in our sins. We are sons of disobedience. We live with absolutely no hope in and of ourselves. And so when we read chapter two, verse one through three, it should be alarming. It really should be alarming because the question is, what hope is there then? If I am dead and I can do nothing, what is there for me? You remember, we have the two greatest words probably in all of scripture in verse four, because it says, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved and raised us up with him 
and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So after the worst verses, verses one through three, we have the absolute best verses in verses four all the way down to verse 10. Now this is a troubling section though for some people because it is hard for us to not take ownership of ourselves it's hard, of us, it's hard for us to just to, to let that go and to absolutely 100% fully trust in the work of Christ and in his saving grace. It's difficult for us to do. I know many of Christians, including this one standing before you, who daily still can struggle with that because I feel I need to earn God's love all the time. Now, the reason for that is kind of fair because frankly, I have to earn your love all the time. All the time I have to earn it for you to like me or to listen to me or to care about me. I have to do that even within my own family. And they have to do it too. And you have to do it too. You live your whole life trying to earn the love, the care, the appreciation of other people. And so then it's very natural for us when we approach God to think that he is probably the same way. We think, I'm going to have to do something special for him to care about me. I need to do something extravagant for him to bless me today. I need to do something to make him continually love me. I've got to do that. But yeah, when we read verses 4 through 10 of Ephesians chapter 2, it completely shatters that notion. There is no ounce of that anywhere in what Paul says, where it says, you earn God's love. Because frankly, you can't. We already said it. A dead person cannot earn love. They can't do anything. And we are dead. But yet God, being rich in mercy, because why? Because of the great love with which he loved us, which he loved you as a Christian. God loved you so much that he poured his grace out on you. God loves you so much that he would send his son to die in your place. Why? says, so that in the coming ages, he might be able to show the immeasurable riches of his glorious grace on your life. Have you ever, this sounds bad. Have you ever hoped that maybe you had some uncle you didn't know? You know what I'm talking about here? Not that he dies, but he dies and you get a letter and it's like, I got good news. You just inherited $10 million from your uncle. I mean, we've all kind of dreamed of that scenario. You know, we've dreamed of that happening. Uh, maybe, you know, I don't, I'm not a big gambler. I don't think gambling is good. Maybe, maybe you got a gift and it was that lottery ticket and you're like, it would be great if this just happened. I mean, what are, what are we doing there? We're thinking of the immeasurable riches that we would have. To think for us, to think of having $10 million, that's immeasurable. Uh, what, what do I do? I don't, I don't even know where to begin with this much money. Can you think of the things that I could do and the fun that I could have with this immeasurable grace. See, that's tangible to us. We, we think about that. And even as I say it, you get a little excited and then you get really depressed because you know it's not going to happen. 
This roller coaster ride, you're like, oh, it's so exciting, but it'll never happen and you just drop, right? Because we, we understand that. Man, if we could only understand what this means. The immeasurable riches of God, the creator of all things, are poured out on you in Christ every day, not because you deserve it, but because God loves you and he will never stop loving you. And the Holy Spirit guarantees that. It's on you always, forever. And one day we will realize it when we are with him, forever, face to face. But it doesn't start then, it starts when he saves you. And these immeasurable riches are just poured out on you because God has loved you. Verse 11, therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you are at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are, who are once were far off and have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who are near. For through him, we both have access in one spirit to the father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. So that big section right there, verse 11, all the way really to chapter three, verse six, Paul is talking about how the mystery has been revealed. And this mystery, we spent a lot of, lot of weeks in this, how this mystery is the fact that God has created one church. It's not Jew, Gentile. There's no divide anymore. It is the church. We are together. And so Paul is saying, Gentiles, to this Gentile church, you are family. In other places, you are seeds of Abraham, right? This is what you are now. And that is us. That includes us. The great mystery has been revealed. And for me, it's good news because I'm a Gentile. I would have no hope apart from Christ. There would, there would be no way apart from Christ. But because of Christ, there is hope. And it is found in Christ and has been given to the Gentiles also. And so Paul goes on in verse 7. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given 
to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages, hidden for ages in God whom created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. You know, Paul at this point is suffering. He's facing a lot of harassment for what he is doing. And so he is writing to this church, trying to help them and encourage them because this leader of theirs seems to be losing. And he wants them to know, no, God has ordained me for this. He has revealed this truth to me in the apostles, that the Gentiles are part of this story. They are saved through Christ as well. Don't worry about what I am suffering. This is for your glory. This is what God has called me to. This is what Christ has brought me to. I am suffering for you. Do not be ashamed in it. Instead, see it as glorifying. So then when we were together last time looking at Ephesians, we looked at verses 14 through 19 together, and this is a prayer. Paul then starts to pray, and he says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Paul prays here for the church. He prays for strength in the power of Christ, that they would be strengthened, that they would be emboldened through the power of Christ to fulfill the mission that God has put on the church. He prays that the church would remain rooted and grounded in love, right? In love of Christ, in love for each other through Christ, in love of God's word. That's, that's what Paul is praying for. And I hope you understand, he's praying for us. This prayer is for us. It's, yes, he wrote it to this church in Ephesus, but, but God has given us this. The Holy Spirit wanted us to have these words, and Paul is praying for us. And so if, there, if there's a, a prayer for us as Monroe Missionary Baptist Church, it would be this prayer. Be strengthened in Christ. Let your inner being be filled with the Spirit. But be rooted and grounded together. But make sure that it's what? In the love of of Christ. And what does Jesus say? If you love me, what do you do? You obey my word. You obey my word. That's how we stay united. That is how we stay grounded, is being centered on the word of God together. And so Paul has said a lot in this section, which brings us to our verses today. Verses 20 and 21. He says, now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. So as we look at verse 20, I kind of stole this. I saw this in multiple commentaries, but Sinclair Ferguson had, had this breakdown in his as well. Uh, taking that first section of verse 20, I'm gonna do it a, a little different. But first, what we see in that section, verse 20, 
is how God can do. God can do. And it's a reminder to us that we serve an active God. He is actively loving you. He is actively caring for you. And God is actively pursuing sinners still this day. He's doing that work because he promised he would do that work. Too often I think we forget this. Too often we do paint the picture that we accuse other people of, of, of God being this gray-headed person sitting on a throne, just kind of sitting up there with power and stuff, but eh, things just kind of go. Things just kind of flow. You know, It's just kind of the, the normal thing. But no, our God is active. Do you remember the story of Elijah in the contest that he had with the prophets of Baal? Do you remember that story? Maybe the last time you heard it was when you were in children's church or something like that, Sunday school as a kid. But it's a fascinating story, right, where Elijah has this contest with the prophets of Baal of if God will bring fire down and consume a sacrifice. And so the prophets of Baal, it's like 400 of them or something like that. I could get that number wrong. But they are praying and they are chanting and they are calling on Baal to send fire down from heaven and to suck up the sacrifice. And they're starting to cut themselves and they're starting to do all these things to try to show their dedication to Baal. And nothing is happening. And it's funny because Elijah starts to taunt them, which I love because I'm competitive. I like doing that as well. What does he say? Hey, maybe you should be louder. Maybe Baal's sleeping. Maybe even worse, maybe he's relieving himself. Maybe Baal had to go to the bathroom. Maybe you just need to wait a little bit and maybe he'll come a little bit later. You see, what, what was Elijah doing? Elijah is pointing out to them something very simple of what we're seeing here. Baal is not active. This Baal that you worship, this Baal that you serve is not an active God. Oh, Baal is a God. You're worshiping it. You're making it a God, but it's not an active God. It's a God with no power. And so then Elijah turns around and sacrifices, does everything he's supposed to do, has water poured all over it. And what do we see? We see the activity of God because God sends fire down and consumes everything, even every drop of water, it tells us. Well, the same God that Elijah worshiped is the same God that we worship. And he hasn't changed. There's no difference there. We serve a God that can do and does. He does this thing because he is active and God is always active and at work in your life as a believer. Now, some of you might be sitting here today thinking, I don't know if that's true. I got to tell you something. That is your fault, not his. That is your fault. If you, don't, if you don't notice it, if you don't sense it, if you don't realize it, that is on you, not on him because he is active in your life. His word is there for you. Now, whether you're in it, whether you're actively involved in church and faithful to your church family, these are, these are the things that God uses in our life to show his activity, to help mold us and make us. And oftentimes we neglect that, but God never does. But what can God do? Well, it tells us here that God can do all that we ask. God calls us to go to him in prayer and to even ask for things. We see this in the Lord's prayer. I hope that you know the Lord's prayer. It's in Matthew chapter six, verse nine through 13. But when Jesus was asked, how should we pray? This is what he says. Pray then like this, our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. You notice that there's a request. God, give us this day our, our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. God, please lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. See, when Jesus teaches us how to pray, he doesn't neglect the fact that we need things. 
And actually says we can ask God for things. Give us this day our daily bread. And as we do that, we understand that our God is at work and he is in control and he is able to do all that we ask. That's what it says here in Ephesians 3.20. God can do all that we ask. But sometimes it's hard for us, isn't it? It's hard for us to ask for things because we struggle wondering our own motives. We think, God, I really wanna ask for this, but I don't know if it's the right thing to ask. And so we have this fear with that. Sometimes we struggle to ask for things because we know our motives and it's not good. And so we shouldn't be asking it. But we are told in scripture to ask. And I don't think we have to worry about that because we're covered by the next part. Because Paul doesn't just say God can do all that we ask, but he says all that we ask or even think about asking. And so our God doesn't need us to ask because he actually knows all of our thoughts. He knows all of this stuff anyways, and he can actually answer all of those prayers. Psalm 37.4 says, delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of what? Of your heart. Not of the things you say, but he will give you the desires of your heart. When you delight yourself in him, he will give you those desires. Now, obviously, There's a caveat there that often gets twisted and contorted by many a preacher, which is wrong and I wish they would stop, but it needs to align with God, right? As we are serving him, as we are delighted in the Lord, then the desires of our heart match his desires and he will answer those prayers for sure. But he doesn't end there. Not just all that we ask or all that we think of asking, Paul says more than all we ask or think of asking. Now, Paul goes on to tell us that not only what we think or ask, but more than that, and if this isn't even enough, if we're thinking, okay, God, you're willing to do all that I ask, all that I can think, and even more than that, he goes on because he says more abundantly than all we can ask or think of asking. Why in the world would Paul keep doing this? Why would he keep saying more and more abundantly? Well, think about it this way. After talking for three chapters about what God has done for the church, what God has done through Christ for believers, Paul is so overwhelmed at this point that he knows he's like, I I can't even seem to comprehend all of this. What God has done has been so great, so grand. It's more than anybody could have ever asked for. It's more than anybody could have ever even thought about. Our capacity in our mind is so limited, but God is not limited in that way. How many times have you went to go pray? You don't know what to say. You say the same old stuff, don't you? I mean, God, uh, thank you. Thank you for today. You're a good God. I pray for my family. I pray for my kids. I pray for my church. I pray for, maybe you look at the newspaper, this stuff that's happening in the world. But you don't really know what to say. You don't really know what, what should I be doing here? You, you struggle with it. And what does it prove? It proves this fact. We have a very small capacity. We struggle to even know what we need to ask for. We struggle to know what to say and to do when we actually understand that we are kneeling before God, the creator of the universe. And as Christians, we have the privilege to go to him through our mediator, Jesus Christ, where we know that God the Father actually is listening to you when you pray that God would bless the food. He's listening to you. He's there. He's hearing. And when we start to think about all that, 
it, will become, it comes very easy for us to get tongue-tied. I don't know what to say. I don't know what to do. But Paul encourages us here. He says, I have good news. He can do more abundantly anyways than anything you say or think that you might think you need. God is bigger than all of those things. And he has done more abundantly and he's pouring out his riches on you through Christ anyway. That's what Paul's getting at. And if this isn't enough, Paul doesn't just say that. He says far more abundantly than all we can ask or think. And what Paul does here is he makes up a word. This is a word that only Paul uses and he uses it twice in scripture and it translates exceedingly abundantly, infinitely more, far more abundantly, whatever you want to say. Paul is encouraging this church saying, God knows what you need and he loves you and he has a desire to bless you. He's going to do this. See, for me, this is good to hear. This is for me, Tim, as an individual because it is really hard for me to pray Big, what people would say is big. I don't really think that's a scriptural thing, <laughs> big prayers. I think we learn about prayer. But what a lot of people would call these big prayers, I have a difficulty with that. There are desires that I have for us as a church family that, yeah, I believe would align with God's desires, yet I still struggle because I feel so selfish in asking. I do. I question my own motives. I would hope that I could pray, God, I pray that the seats would be full. I pray that the seats would be full of people itching to know the truth of your word. I want to pray prayers like, God, make the members of Monroe Missionary Baptist Church actually love each other. Like actually love each other and want to be with each other. Don't make it that we have to pull teeth to get them to love each other. Just make them love each other. And God, can you, could you have the members of Monroe Missionary Baptist Church also love their neighbor. Like let that spill out to their neighbors so that they're, they're friends with their neighbors so that they could share the truth of the gospel with their neighbors. And God, would you work in those things? See, sometimes I struggle to pray those things because it, it makes me feel selfish. Now, I would think that would align with God's desires. We see in Timothy, God desires for all men to be saved. It says that very clearly. But yet still I can struggle with those things because of my own faults, because of my own thing, my own struggles in my life. And I also realize that as I pray those prayers, as I say those things even to you, those desires that I share fall short. They fall short of God's plans for this church. Me, I think numerically, I don't know if God worries about that so much. We need to be seeking God and praying that God's plan and his will for this church, for your life, for your family would be done. And what we need to understand is what Paul is saying here in verse 20. When we pray, we are praying to the one who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think. Far more abundantly. And we should treat God as such, as a father who loves to give give good gifts to his children as a father who wants to mold you and make you into the image of his son, as a father who chose you and predestined you before the foundations of this world to be a part of his family, as a father who really does love you. He really does. He loves you and he cares about you. And how does God do all of this? Well, it's at the end of verse 20, according to the power at work within us. It goes back to what I said before. 
Let us never forget that the same power that raised Jesus from the dead is the same power that raised you as a believer. When you went into that baptistry or whatever baptistry it was, you'd been saved by God's grace. What you had done and what you're doing in that baptistry is you are showing people what God has done for you. You are showing the power that he has exerted in your life to take a dead person buried in the grave and brought up to actual life in Christ. That is what we see in baptism. That is what God has done for us. It is the exact same power. And God has given us his word and he's given us his word to guide us and to show us the truth through the Holy Spirit. And as he does this, as I've been saying, he molds us and makes us into the image of his son. Well, then verse 21, Paul ends this section saying, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever, amen. Paul says, let God's glory be in the church. Well, this could be read, I guess, in two ways. Number one, either we reflect his glory or he uses the church to show his glory to the world. Either way, this is good news for us. And it's something it seems as if we are actively involved in as a church family. I want us to be reminded of that this morning. As we function in the church, as the church is the church, as we do the things that we are supposed to do, the world sees God's glory on display. That's no light task. That is no light task. So then there has to be questions for us that we need to be able to answer. What does the church do? What does the church do? We have to be able to answer that. And I don't want to spend a lot of, a lot of time on this this morning, but there's a lot of people within churches today, I believe, adding to what the church should do to be a faithful church. And I don't think it's right. Because I think it's laid out for us very clearly and simply of what the church does. We display God's glory through his word. We preach and we teach his word. We display God's glory as we sing together, because God calls us to come together and to sing praises to him. We display God's glory through Lord's Supper, which we're doing next week together. We display God's glory through baptism. And we display God's glory as we have the opportunity to do ministry that he lets us do. If you go much farther beyond that, we're starting to add things. This is what we do. This is how we display the glory of God. And to be honest, it looks very peculiar to our world today. It looks odd to wake. Hey, I don't know what it looks like when you drive to church, but when I drive to church on Sunday morning, I am the only one on the road. I drive for 13 miles and I might pass one car. I go through intersections. I go through all kinds of stuff and there's just nobody out. It's just a different time. It is odd for your neighbor to know that you wake up early to go to church. What? Are you serious? You go to church during a pandemic? You're really crazy. Well, why do you do that? I hope you do that to display the glory of God in your life, of what he has done. This is what I'm called to do. This is what I'm supposed to do. I'm supposed to go to church. I'm supposed to hear his word preached. I'm supposed to be taught it. I'm supposed to sing together. I'm supposed to love these people that God has put me with. This is how we make God's glory known in the world. And this is what Paul is talking about, God's glory in the church. But he doesn't stop there. He also says, in Christ. God's glory in Christ. It might seem odd that Paul would say that. It might seem like, of course. 
But in Christ, we see God's glory undisplayed and this can never be separated. Christ always has to be central, always, to the church, to church life, and as a believer. Jesus Christ is central because without Christ, you don't have God's glory. You're not displaying God's glory. You're not doing what you are supposed to be doing as a believer. I think we need to hear this this morning. We are not a bunch of people who listen to cool Bible stories and then just throw out some moralism with the story. If, if that's what we think we are, if that's what we think that we, that we do, you know, we got these cool stories about Jonah and he's swallowed by a fish and it's great. You know, we should be like, not like Jonah, we should do what God says. If that's what we get from Jonah, we've separated it from Christ and we're not reflecting God's glory because we're not giving him his due. You cannot be separated from Christ. It has to be all about him. As a church, this is what we are. We are a people of the crucified Savior and King, Jesus. That's the badge that we wear. That we, can't, we can't take it off. I know a cool thing now is you get hats and they, they sell patches and you can take the patches off ever so often. As a Christian, this is a patch you can never take off. You have the blood-stained cloak of your savior on you and you can't remove it. That's who we are. We serve a savior who died, but who rose again. That's our story. That is our message. That's what our kids need to know. That's what our teenagers need to know. That's what you as adults need to know. And that's what your neighbors need to know. That's what your family needs to know. That you are about Christ in all things. Why? Because it is in Christ where God's glory is on full display. And then Paul ends with some really good news. He tells us that God's glory remains forever. He says throughout all generations forever and ever. What a promise. What a promise we have that the glory of God will never end, but that it will remain for all time. We, we have no need as Christians to ever for one second worry that somebody greater is going to come and take his place. We will never as Christians stand and say, oh, God lost. I guess I need to follow that person now. God had it all wrong. I guess I should follow this person now. No, Paul tells us his glory remains forever and ever and ever. What God has decreed will be done. And Paul ends with a word. It's a word you don't hear too often anymore in a lot of churches, except for at the end of a prayer. But it's the word amen. And you think, why did he say amen at the end of this? Well, because amen means truth. The word amen means that is truth, that is right, that is correct in what is being said here. And Paul wants it to be known. God's glory will remain forever through the church and through his son, Jesus, throughout all generations, forever and ever and ever. And this is the truth. Know it. See, he's writing to a persecuted church. He's writing to a church that is, that is hurting, that is facing real trials and struggles and trouble. And he wants them to be assured that God loves them and that they are actually a part of the family of God through Christ. That's what he's doing. Church family, we live in a day today where people are struggling. I don't think they're struggling like the church of Ephesus. 
Pastor Scott's going through a series with the youth, which is a really good series. And we're, we're reiterating it on the podcast that we do every week about progressive Christianity. And if you study it at all, if you start to learn about progressive Christianity, what you'll find out very quick is there is a big group of people in this world who are hurting and questioning God constantly. They're questioning him. They're questioning because of their life circumstances. They're questioning them because of things they thought they believed. They don't know if they believe it anymore. There's all kinds of questions going on out there. And sadly, there's a lot of churches who are bending to knee to the itchy ears for what they want to hear because they want to get people in the seats. And they, you have churches who are starting to compromise and they're saying, you know, it's okay if we say this and when we get them here, we'll tell them the truth about Jesus and we'll show them the love of Christ. It's okay if we kind of twist this. It's okay if we don't really talk about that. It's okay if we shun this. And sadly, you have a lot of churches, I think, who are just walking people straight into hell because they're not being faithful to the savior that died for them. They're ashamed of this book. They're ashamed of the things that this book says. They feel that people have come along and proven this to be wrong. They've proven this not to be wholly true, that you can't trust all of it. And so we have a world right now who believes that and who is struggling. We have, we have kids within our own church who've gone away who are struggling. People you know, family members you know, friends that you know. And it would be very tempting to give in. It would be very tempting to desire to see that person's glory shine more than the glory of Christ. But we cannot do that. We love them. We care for them. We pray for them. We minister to them. Might even still hang out with them, whatever it might be. But we as a church must always be faithful to reflect the glory of God in everything we say, in everything we do, and to understand that God's glory will remain throughout all generations because this is true. This is truth. In a world that is asking over and over again, what really is truth? That is the question. Just like Socrates, just like Plato, just like all those who asked that question, what really is truth? Thousands of years later, that question still remains for many people. And the Bible is the only place for that truth. The Bible is the only place where that truth can be found. Nowhere else. And as a church, to that we say, like Paul, amen and amen. Let's bow together. Let's pray together. <clears throat> God, it is very humbling to pray when we understand what's happening when we pray. that because of Jesus and his death, his burial and his resurrection, because of your salvation, which you bestowed upon us as believers, we have the privilege to go to you in prayer, our Father, knowing that you love us, knowing that you care for us. God, we do struggle with what to ask. We struggle with what to say. God, we do have a limited capacity, but God, I'm thankful for what Paul has taught us in Ephesians 3, verse 20, that we serve a God who can do far more abundantly than anything we ask or think. 
And so God, I I thank you how you have made a way in everything. You made a way for the dead to rise in Christ. You've even made a way for my prayers to be answered and prayers I don't even know I need to be praying. In fact, your word tells us in Romans that the Holy Spirit prays for us and intercedes on our behalf. God, as a church family, we have a desire to reflect your glory. And God, it's getting more difficult to do that, I would say, in terms of pushback from the outside. God, it wasn't many years ago where could freely say truths of your word and there wasn't a ton of pushback. But God, now the push seems to come not just from the world, but even from churches. And so God, we don't wanna be egotistical. We don't wanna be prideful. We just want to reflect your glory. We want to do according to your word what is right and what is true. We wanna be faithful to you in everything we say and everything we do. And so God, as a church family, we ask that you would help us to do that, but help us to be able to do that in the simple things of loving each other and the simple things of just being active within the life of the church, whether that's home groups, Sunday school, attending, being together throughout the week, ministering to one another. God, these are the easy things that you've called us to that we can't deny, we can't doubt that. And God, you use that to show your glory to the world, those things. So help us to be faithful to even those little things. God, as individual believers, help us to be in awe of what you've done through Christ. Help us to be honest with you and to be willing to confess sin when you reveal sin in our life. Help us to love you how we should, where we are, at work, at school, wherever it may be, if we're retired, at home, in our community. But whatever that looks like for us, each of us as individual believers, to continue to reflect your glory even in those places. God, work in our hearts now as we get ready to sing this song to you. Help us to respond to your word how we should. God, we thank you for the book of Ephesians. We look forward to being able to dive into it more and more if you allow us to do that. So God, help us to worship you now with this last song and help us to respond how we should to your word. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Let's stand together. You have been listening to a message by Pastor Tim from Together in Christ. This content has been provided to you by Monroe Missionary Baptist Church. For more information, visit us online at mmbconline.org.